Hey guys, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Holland Chapel, and we're excited to bring uh, this sermon to you. Um, We're actually recording it on Monday because we had a technical difficulty on Sunday, but we want the Word of God uh, to go out to you and the many others that listen in. Uh, We're in this sermon series in the book of Acts called Shift with this idea of bigger. Um, And so this whole word shift, it brings forth the idea of adjustment. And adjustment a lot of times sounds uncomfortable, and it is. It brings forth the idea of change, and change a lot of times sounds daunting, and it is. But when it's for the gospel's sake, it is worth it. And we are seeing God in the book of Acts bringing about a shift in the early church, seeing a, a shift take place in individuals' lives, and today is just going to be an incredible story. I want to suggest to you that those um, that resist Christianity often do so because they have many unanswered questions. But when considering Christianity, there's one question that trumps all the others. It doesn't answer all of those other questions necessarily, but it does put them into perspective. And those same people that have all those questions like me and like you, we don't become Christians because we get all our answers. Rather, something bigger comes along. Think about this for just a moment. There are a lot of reasons why men don't want to get married. We could talk about commitment, being tied down, a lot of other reasons. But why do do men get married? Well, she comes along and he falls in love with her. Something bigger comes along. He is moved to do something with gladness that without the relationship and the connection with this other person, he wouldn't ordinarily do. A shift takes place because of a person. Um, if you're a parent and maybe you, uh, as a uh, husband and wife, you've been, you know, dreaming about having kids and your dream was to have two kids and then God is so gracious to bless you with two kids and then all of a sudden a third one comes along, you don't give it away. Why? Because that third baby is real. That baby makes it personal. It changes your perspective. A shift takes place because of a person. So why don't you become a Christian? Well, maybe it's questions. Maybe it's hard to believe stories in the Bible, um, like Jonah, like hanging out in the belly of the whale, and that's just really hard for you to understand or to believe or to comprehend. A lot of people wonder, will will I get to have fun anymore after I become a Christian? A lot of people ask this question, like, why do bad things happen to good people? And then maybe just the idea of other Christians, people who claim the name of Jesus, but they don't live like it. And so it's just really interesting to know that from Scripture, people in the Bible never call themselves Christians. Other people called them Christians because they saw them acting like Jesus, and so they called them Christians. What if something bigger comes along and everything for you when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Jesus, comes into perspective? There are plenty of things we believe that are unexplainable, things that we uh, just really can't explain, but yet we still use them, we still believe in them, we still participate in them. Technology is one of those, for instance. I don't, I don't know how to explain my smartphone, but yet I use it. Why? Because it's undeniable that it works and that it's helpful. Uh, when I go on a long trip, I'm happy to get on an airplane. I can't explain it. I don't know how it flies. I've looked into aerodynamics. It just goes beyond my ability to comprehend how all of that works, but it's undeniable that it works, and so I hop on 
the plane. So today, we're going to consider one question. Ultimately, this one question is the question that everyone needs to consider and every person needs to think through really, really hard. And that one question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 7. We're going to look back um, into a portion that we've already looked at to get our character that's going to be in our story today. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 57. And so there's this group uh, that's come together that is hating um, followers of Jesus. Um, There's this young man named Stephen that's been preaching the gospel. And we see here in verse 57, then they, this group, this mob that hated these believers, says they put their hands over their ears and began shouting, kind of like kids do when they put their hands over their ears and go, no, 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 I can't hear you. Very mature, right? They rushed at him, Stephen, and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul is who we're going to be looking at really hard today as we look at the book of Acts. Look on now to Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that way. That day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So just imagine for just a moment that you're a believer in Jesus. We're used to being able to come to church freely when we want to, when we don't feel like it, we just don't. When we do feel like it, we do. But let's just imagine for a moment that there is a group of people that are going around our neighborhood, knocking on our doors, asking us and finding out whether or not we believe in Jesus. When they find out they believe in Jesus, they're grabbing us, they're grabbing our wife, they're grabbing our kids that believe in Jesus, and they're dragging us out the door, and they're going to throw us into prison and treat us who knows how. So what's happening in this moment in history, in the book of Acts, it's kind of open season on Christians. It's like if you're a Jew and you don't, uh, you don't agree with Jesus and his, his uh, whole following, you're just out to kill them and to destroy them. The religious leaders of the day, they were smiling upon it, saying, go ahead, take them out, because it was totally messing up their whole plan. The Roman government that was in charge was fine with it too, because as long as it didn't bother them, they didn't care. And so it was open season on Christians. So we got this guy named Saul, who's not a good guy at all, especially if you were a Christian. Um, And so this guy is eventually going to become, out of persecuting Christians and being against Christianity, as being the greatest impact for Christianity in all of history. It's just a crazy thought that God would choose this guy named Saul to make that kind of difference for the church, for Christianity, and for the gospel. What a shift we're going to see take place. 
Look now in Acts chapter 9 and verse number 1. Acts chapter 9 and verse number 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so this guy obviously had deep anger issues. He was walking uh, from one place to another, headed to Damascus. He's breathing threats under his breath. He's just mad. He's just furious. I don't know if you've ever been that mad before and wanted to destroy something. Um, At our house, we've got these moths that we can't get rid of, and we've kind of gotten them down to a few number, but every now and then we'll open the cabinet, and they'll come out, and I mutter something under my breath, and I try to smash them, and they get away, and I try again, and I'm just angry that these moths exist. Well, it's one thing to be angry that you have a moth in your home. This guy is trying to eradicate every one of the Lord's followers. It goes on there in verse number 1 to say, So he went to the high priest. Verse 2, he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. And so he goes to the religious leaders. He's like, hey, I want your approval on this deal. I want documentation, and I want you to send letters with me to the other groups of Jews that are in Damascus and their religious leaders asking for their help and their cooperation so that we, again, can eradicate all of these followers of the way that we see mentioned here in verse number two. And in Paul, Saul's mind, uh, as we know him now, Saul, the way just simply meant some group of crazy people that believed in Jesus. It was some cult in his mind. It was some offensive group of blasphemers towards God in his mind because he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He didn't believe that he was the son of God. And he was trying to eradicate them. And it's interesting that the way is not merely an idea. It's not merely a group, but it's a person. Because Jesus, when he was here, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the way is the way um, Christianity was referred to early on. It goes on there in verse number two and says, he wanted to bring them, Saul wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. So he's walking along, uttering threats under his breath with paperwork in his hand to go um, arrest all of these followers of the way. This huge bright light shines down on him. It's daytime, but this light that's even brighter, a supernatural light hits him. Verse 4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so we have this voice that we're going to recognize very clearly in Scripture as being Jesus speaking out loud to Saul. And it's interesting that we have this pronoun here, this personal pronoun of me. Saul, again, thought he was coming after this group that just would just be a cult in his mind, this crazy uh, group of blasphemers. But Jesus makes it very clear that this is a personal issue. And that's what Jesus does in this moment as he makes this moment into a personal moment. And that's what I want you to get. Jesus makes it personal. 
Jesus made it personal for Saul, and he wants to make it personal for us, saying, why are you persecuting me? And then verse number 5, Saul asks this so very important, appropriate question. Who are you? And so he realizes he's dealing with a person now. He says, who are you, Lord? This is the question. This is the something bigger, the person of Jesus Christ. And he begins to wrestle with this, and it doesn't take long for Jesus to respond. It says, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And I imagine in this moment, Saul is thinking back to his interactions and his seeing of and knowing of Jesus. He would have been in Jerusalem just a few months earlier when Jesus was talking to people and when Jesus was preaching, when Jesus was healing people. Saul was very uh, likely in the shadows and the backgrounds of the religious leaders as they were trying to figure out a way to take Jesus out of the equation. He was there on that day that the Jewish religious leaders led the crowd and shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And I can just imagine Saul's voice just being a little bit louder and a little bit angrier than everybody's, everybody else's as he was shouting with confidence that he was right. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But here is Jesus speaking to him now. And Saul's got to be thinking, wait a minute, you were out of the way. I saw you get nails in your hands. I saw the nails go in your feet. I saw how you suffered. I saw how you bled. I've never seen anybody survive a crucifixion. I watched you bleed. I watched you suffer. I watched you die. I thought you were out of the way. And I thought when we got your followers out of the way that this whole idea of the way, this whole cult, this whole group of blasphemers would get gone. Wait a minute. You're alive? You're talking to me? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And Jesus makes it very, very personal that this is about me, and if you're persecuting my church, you're persecuting me. Verse number 6, Jesus goes on. He says, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Jesus told him what to do. I think Saul was not used to being told what to do. He was constantly telling others what to do. And he was large and he was in charge, but someone larger and much more powerful, which much, with much more authority. In fact, with all authority comes along and speaks to Saul and tells him to get up and to go into the city. And there he'll find out more information. Verse number 7. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Can you imagine this moment? If you're traveling with Saul, he's been blinded, he's on the ground, he's been listening. You don't really know what happened either, and you're wondering what in the world is going on. Verse number 8, Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Wow, just this moment of being overwhelmed, being blinded, all the humility that must have come over, and maybe even humiliation that must have come over Saul in this moment, to go from barking orders to those that would kill followers of Jesus for him, 
for them having to take his hand and lead him along the way. How discombobulating that must be to all of a sudden be blind, to now not know which way is left or right or up or down or east or west and have to follow the hand of another and trust someone. I would venture to say that most of you, if I were to say, hey, right now, like, go get a blindfold and sit there for three minutes blinded by your blindfold, you'd be very, very uncomfortable with that idea, and you probably wouldn't do it. But here's Saul, completely blind, not eating or drinking, overwhelmed, kind of shell shock, so scared that he can't even eat or drink. It goes on in verse number 10. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. So we've got a new character in this portion of the story. There's another Ananias in the book of Acts, I believe back in chapter 5. And that Ananias was not faithful. He claimed to follow Jesus, but he also lied. And God removed him out of the equation. But now we see this Ananias, a believer who is faithful and ready to obey. It says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. And Ananias replied, yes, Lord. What a quick and appropriate response for a follower of Jesus to make when he hears the voice of the Lord, to say, yes, Lord. Saul didn't know who Jesus was, and he asked the right question, said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus made himself very clear as to who he was. Well, Ananias already knew who Jesus was. He already knew that he was Lord. He already knew that he conquered death and hell and the grave. And so he replies, yes, Lord. Lord, and that should be our response as believers when the Lord calls our name. Verse number 11 says, The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from, from Tarshish named Saul. He is praying to me right now. So we've got Saul who has gone from uttering angry mutterings under his breath to now having a dialogue of prayer with the Lord. He's now speaking to Jesus because Jesus now is not just an idea or a cult leader. Jesus is a person that's died for his sins. Jesus is a person that has come back from the dead. Jesus is this one that has connected him to God and he's communing with him. It goes on to verse number 12. And Jesus says, I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias, coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Verse 13, we go from verse 10 saying, yes, Lord, to verse number 13. After hearing the instructions, Ananias says, but, Lord. And isn't that a lot of times if we're believers and Jesus calls our name and we're like, yes, I'm here, great. And then Jesus tells us what to do and we're like, wait a minute, I don't know if you really understand what you just told me. And so Ananias exclaims, but, Lord, and then he tries to like, remind Jesus or explain to Jesus what he's just said. Here's what he says. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man, Saul, has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. You can just imagine the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions and the ideas that must have been just flooding through Ananias' head. Like, Lord, I hear you, but I don't think you really know who you're talking about. You're talking about the meanest guy alive when it comes to your followers right now. And you want me to do what? You want me to go to him and help him? You want me to go to him and heal him? Verse number 15. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people 
of Israel. And so the Lord Jesus makes it very clear to Ananias and to us what his plan for Saul is. It's to take him from being the persecutor of the church to the greatest promoter of the church. Verse 16, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And we're going to see that happen in just a moment. Verse 17, so Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. Really cool how Ananias addresses Saul in this moment. He doesn't necessarily give Saul a title, but he affirms his new identity. He speaks into the shift that he is seeing through Jesus in Saul's life, and he calls him his brother. He says, you and I are brothers now. We both belong to God now through Jesus. And so this term brother, it's a term of relationship. It's not a title. It's not a position that we hold here on this earth. It's a relationship that we have. So when you call someone brother or you call someone sister, you're speaking into the relationship that you have with them through Jesus. So we see this identity shift happen in Saul. And so again, Ananias says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Now, if you've been in church a long time, um, this idea of being baptized is probably not that big of a deal to you. If you're a believer, uh, you may have been baptized, and uh, you, you should do that if you're a believer. But a lot of times, I think we just think, well, that's you know what we do after we get saved. and lets everybody know that we're a follower of Jesus, and that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And I think a lot of us think, well, that's, you know, that's how you get in the church, and, and that's how you connect. Um, but you've got to understand in this moment for Saul... What a massive thing this was. This guy has given his life, all of his education, everything that he has done and worked for in his life was to help him to become the greatest religious leader in Judaism. And now he is drawing a line in the sand, the line of demarcation, and saying, you know what, I am not following the way which had become a perverted way of Judaism, and I'm going to step away from that. I'm going to step across the line, and I'm going to let the whole world know, including the very religious leaders that gave me the papers to go to Damascus to haul in these followers of Jesus, that I am one of them, that I'm a follower of the way, that he is my way, that he is my life, and that he is my hope. What's happened? Jesus has entered into Saul's life. Something bigger and more personal superseded his questions, his doubts, and his disbeliefs. At this moment, Saul didn't have all the questions, uh, all the answers to his questions, but he'd encountered Jesus. And he knew that Jesus had died for his sin. He knew that Jesus had come back from the dead, and it dispelled all of those other things for him to experience relationship with God through Jesus, something bigger has come along as Jesus has made himself personal to him. Verse number 19, afterward he ate some food and regained his strength. 
Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, check this out, he, Jesus, is indeed the Son of God. Saul has found himself publicly preaching and declaring about Jesus the very thing that he hated most about the followers of Jesus because they believed that he was the Son of God. But now he's encountered the Son of God. He has believed in the Son of God, and now he is preaching that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. You're talking about a shift. It goes on to say there in verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. Isn't the same man who caused such devastation amongst Among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they ask. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priest? Verse 22. Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. The Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He had wrestled with who Jesus is He had an encounter with Jesus that was real. He had an experience that was very, very real. And he probably couldn't answer every question that every Jewish person threw his way, but he could tell him about a person. He could tell him about an experience. He could tell him about his faith and the life change that's happened in him. And it says they couldn't refute it. They couldn't refute it. Verse 23. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. So within just about a day, he has gone from being the guy that's going to kill the followers of Jesus to becoming a follower of Jesus and then wanting to kill him. He has gone from being the hunter to the hunted. Verse 24, they were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city of, in the city wall. So it's like he pulled off some kind of like Indiana Jones escape here. Verse 26. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. Now what group of believers was this? Well, if you remember back, In um, Acts chapter 8, it said the believers that stayed back in Jerusalem were the apostles, like the 12, like the guys hung out with Jesus for about three years. Saul comes knocking on the door, and they're like, you can keep on knocking, but you can't come in. I mean, they knew what Saul was all about. They saw the havoc that he had wreaked amongst their church and amongst their people. And they're like, you're out there, we're in here, and that's not changing. Verse 27. Then Barnabas, this guy that's known as an encourager who we read about earlier in the book of Acts comes along. And it says, then Barnabas brought him to the apostles. He had relationship with the apostles. He also had built a relationship with Saul. It says he brought them to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told, told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And so what does Barnabas do here? He he vouches for uh, the life change that he saw in Saul. Think about this for just a moment. If you're a follower of Jesus and someone didn't know you and they were wondering if you really were a follower of Jesus, could someone else come along and vouch for you? 
Could they say to them, you know what? We saw who he used to be, and that's not who he is anymore. He had an encounter with Jesus, and his life has been forever changed. Instead of pushing down the name of Jesus, he's promoting the name of Jesus. Would someone vouch for you? goes on here now to say in verse 28, So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus has made it personal for Saul. So personal that Jesus became real for him, and he understood that he was encountering the resurrected Savior. He understood that Jesus had really died, and that Jesus had come back from the dead and had this incredible experience on the road to Damascus. And maybe for you, you're like thinking, well, if I'm driving to Walmart and this big bright light hits me and I have to like run off the road and hit a curb and I hop out and there's Jesus in this big, loud, booming voice saying, I am Jesus, then yeah, I guess I would probably believe in him. Well, that's really cool if that's what you think you would do in that moment because what you're saying is if you had an encounter with the personal resurrected Savior that all of your questions would shrink and it would become personal for you and you could find yourself believing in Him. And I believe that all of us potentially can have a Damascus Road experience and what we must do today is say, Who are you? Who are you? The scripture teaches that where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. And so when we gather as a church, even this moment as I'm re-preaching this sermon, and there's one other person in the room that believes in Jesus, we believe that he's here. And so wherever you're listening to this right now, through your earbuds, through the app, or at home through your computer, we believe that Jesus is present with you right now. So why don't you just ask him, who are you? Who are you, Jesus? And if there is a you, then I don't want to miss you. So, like, reveal yourself to me. If there is a Jesus to know, it doesn't matter about all those other questions because if Jesus is who he says he is and if Jesus did what the Scripture says that he did, it changes us forever. This one who claims to be the Son of God died on the cross for everyone and then came back from the dead. Well, you're like, I don't, I don't believe it. Well, at least consider it. Better yet, consider him. Begin asking this question, who are you, Jesus? Paul is the name that Saul would later become known as. His life change was so radical that they quit calling him Saul. They started calling him Paul. And he would go on to influence the church and promote the gospel and impact Christianity like no one ever has and I guess no one ever will. He wrote over half the New Testament. And he goes on later on in life to write the book of Philippians. And this same guy named Saul that said, Who are you, Lord? Would write in the book of Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what Paul is telling us is that now or later, we're going to have to consider who he, he is. And now or later, we are going to have to 
proclaim him as being Lord. And what Paul is doing in this moment in the book of Philippians, speaking into our lives, saying every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is showing us grace as Jesus has shown us grace, saying pick now because now he can become the Lord of your life. He can become the Savior of your life. He can forgive you of your sins. He can change the whole direction of your life. He can go so far as to change your identity, to change your name, and to change your future and your eternity. Because if we wait until we get to that place when this life is over and that day comes and we've got to proclaim Him as Lord, we will still do it. But it, will be, it will be too late. There will be no salvation for us. So my strong suggestion to you today is to claim Jesus as your Lord now, not later. You see, Jesus wants it personal. He wants to have an encounter with you. He wants to be real with you. He wants to have relationship with you. Do you want it personal? Do you want it personal? Saul had his questions. Saul had his doubts. But a personal experience with Jesus changed everything. He didn't say in Philippians that someday every question will be answered. He said every knee will bow. I'd rather know the answer to that question, the question of who is Jesus, than knowing the answer to all the other questions. I would like to know who the rescuer is, who the redeemer is, who the savior is is. May Jesus become so personal to you right now in your life as you begin to ask this question, who is Jesus? And him making himself so real, so personal that all the other questions that you have just come into perspective and they don't matter so much because of the relationship that you can have with him. Who is Jesus? Ask Jesus who he is. Look at Jesus. Maybe you're considering crossing the line of faith. You've, you've been considering it, but you've still got questions, and you don't know about this, and you don't know about that. Who is Jesus? And as he makes himself real to you, I just want to urge you and pray for you that you cross that line of faith and believe in him. When was your road to Damascus story? Do you have one? Mine wasn't as flamboyant and um, dramatic as Saul's was on the road to Damascus, literally. But mine happened for me when I was young, and Jesus started to make himself real to me. My sin became real. His sacrifice became real. His resurrection became real. And I was at home, and I remember it very, very vividly. It was that moment when Jesus became personal for me. It's that moment when Jesus became real to me. And maybe for you, you don't have one of those moments. Maybe for you, today needs to be the day. Paul, this guy named Saul who became Paul, eventually went on to write that today is the day of salvation. Maybe you've been listening to sermons here at HC and, and you've been considering Jesus. Maybe you've been talking to your friend about Jesus. Maybe you've been reading something about Jesus. You've been in this process and faith is building in your heart. I pray that today you will believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and that if you receive Jesus as your Lord, you'll share him with others 
You'll pray for others to receive him. There are potentially some Saul's on your list, some people that you know. You're a believer and they're not, and you're thinking they're too far gone. They're too far away. They're too opposed to God. They're too disbelieving in Jesus. And this story today of the conversion of Saul should give us hope for those in our lives that we need to continue to pray for and ask God to change. I mean, you think about Saul and how, in my words, how evil he was in persecuting followers of Jesus and trying to kill them and how he was trying to destroy them. And if I would have been alive during those days, I probably would have prayed a prayer like this. Hey, God, you, you know Saul, and he's trying to kill all of us, so would you beat him to the punch and go ahead and kill him? And instead, God gave him grace and changed him. And there's people that are experiencing that grace today. There are people that you don't need to give up on, that you need to pray for, and you need to point to Jesus that he can change forever. Maybe you used to be a Saul. You used to be so opposed to Jesus, but he's changed you now, and you've experienced his grace. Well, extend that to others. Let me pray for us. Father, I bow before you, thanking you for every person that's willing to take the time to listen today. And I pray that as that guy sitting there listening to this and he's been considering you, thinking about you, but he's still got questions, he's still got doubts, there's still just this, you know, lack of understanding in all of these things. I pray that you'd make yourself real to him today, Jesus. And I pray that he would find himself taking a step, a leap of trust and faith, knowing that you are real, that there's a lot of questions that don't have answers to, but that you, Jesus, died for him, that you, Jesus, came back from the dead, and you want to forgive sin, and you want to change people, and you want to receive people. I pray for that one that's considering crossing the line of faith right now, that they would do that. Jesus, make yourself personal. Make this thing into uh, just a focus on you. For those of us who are believers, may we just get so focused on you. May you become bigger than everything else. All the things that distract us, discourage us, bring about maybe even disbelief in our hearts. I pray we get our eyes back on you, Jesus, and allow you just to just to be personal once again and have a relationship with you once again and pray for those that need you. God bless each and every one that's listening. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.